Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, the greatest living American writer, Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic, three times Jeopardy champion, and editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, Neil Pollock. You can find our website at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. And we have a weekly show for you that we do right here on the internet airwaves. This week, we have an excellent episode. We are going to feature a conversation with frequent contributor William Schwartz about One Piece, a delightful new Netflix uh, manga adaptation. It's a kind of a pirate anthology series. It's not a cartoon, although it is a little cartoonish and it's quite good and you will enjoy it. We're also going to talk to Paul Shirley, uh, a friend and acquaintance of mine and also a former NBA basketball player and now a writer. And he's written about Winning Time, a show that HBO Max recently canceled. It's a show about the Lakers-Celtics rivalry in the 1980s. And Paul's going to talk to me about why it's so hard to make a good TV show about basketball. But first, we're going to head up north and talk to Canadian correspondent Jamie Mason about recent censorship problems in Canada. And we're going to delve a little bit into some uh, Canadian political trends. I know you all listen to the show to talk about uh, Canadian political trends. We are on the pulse of the Great White North and all of its censorship issues. And we'll be right back to talk to Jamie about that right after these musical notes. We spent a lot of time on the site and on this program talking about censorship, mostly in the United States. Uh, there's been a, a lot of uh, censorship of literature uh, in the U.S. Well, of libraries, really. There, there's, there's a concerted effort uh, by the political right, mostly, to uh, restrict access to books uh, among teenagers. What's interesting is that there, the uh, censorship politics in other countries, English-speaking countries, we don't really cover the censorship politics in non-English-speaking countries much, are very different. You know, in the UK, the, the trend right now is to bodlerize works of classic literature so they don't offend anyone. We've talked about the censorship of works of uh, Sir Ian Fleming and Roald Dahl and others. Meanwhile, at, in our neighbor to the north, in Canada, uh, libraries are, are emptying their shelves, school libraries, for very different reasons. And we have Jamie Mason, our Canadian correspondent, here today to talk to me about it. Hello, Jamie. Good morning, Neil. Good morning to you, sir. So you wrote a piece this week about uh, this trend in Canada to uh, sort of a diversity, equity, and inclusion gone amok situation in libraries, right? Tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, sure. Well, this was kind of unexpected, and it was uh, one of those little stories that popped up at the beginning of the school year. But in the Peel School District of Ontario, uh, which serves a number of communities, uh, students returned at the beginning of the academic year to find that the shelves of their school libraries had been severely depleted through the summer. In fact, uh, there were less than half of the same number of volumes in the library as had been there at the end of the last school year. And it turns out that the libraries of the district had been very aggressively called by librarians attempting to enact some of the guidelines that had been set forth by the Canadian School Library Association. Long story short, in the Peel District, any book that had been published prior to 2008 was removed from the shelves. Any book that had been published prior to 2008, is that because of their 
So supposedly regressive attitudes towards race and gender, or is there something else at play here that I don't quite get? I think it's a combination, Neil, of a couple of things. I think, first of all, you have a kind of a top-down management structure in Canada. The federal government and, you know, the the so-called Canadian deep state uh, have a lot more power up here than the government does in the U.S. And so it's it's very easy uh, for the system to make adjustments to just about any aspect of Canadian public life by tweaking things at the top. So I think what, what has really happened here is that you had some guidelines that were put forth by a national body that was then taken by a provincial body that they attempted to make sense of. And their best solution for creating a, a library collection that was diverse, uh, equitable, and inclusive was to get rid of anything published prior to the magic year of 2008. I don't know how they picked that year, but that's what happened. I mean, there. I think there were books that would um, that were inclusive and diverse and equitable published before 2008. I, I recall I was reading before 2008. I seem to recall reading books that were not, um, you know, racist, you know, or sexist back back then. It's, I, I don't think every book published that wasn't published within the last 15 years is somehow now racist. It doesn't make sense. Well, I, I think when we were when we were discussing the article, Neil, the uh, the book, the Diary of Anne Frank, came up, mm. uh, and that's one of the books that had been removed. And of course, that was written prior to two thousand eight. Yes. Um, but it, it, here's the irony: is that that's that's an extremely important book in terms of understanding reactionary politics, uh, racial genocide, and European history. I would I would consider it one, one of those seminal texts that re, that kids really need to be exposed to. Agreed. And now it's gone. So I don't know how that that leads to equity and inclusion. Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, and this is the first time that book has uh, has come under fire in both Canada and the United States. But I, I guess my question is: All right, you say that there's this top-down management structure, but this is just one school district in Ontario, right? Canada is is a large country. I understand that it's probably a well-populated school district. It serves a decent uh, percentage of the country's students, but it's not like this is happening everywhere, or is it? And then we just haven't heard about it. Okay, so what's happening in the Peel District so far, I have only heard about uh, happening in that district. And apparently, uh, the hue and cry that has been raised is is causing them to at least nominally re-examine their policy. But here's the thing, is that w- what's happening in the library is sort of merely one strand of what we see being rolled out across the country in terms of educational reform here in Canada. And that's something that's, that's really been accelerating. How, how so? I mean, I know that Canada has been uh, having sort of a reckoning uh, with its treatment of its native populations, but what, what, you know, what is going on in Canada? I mean, I guess that's the question, you know, what, when there's an educational uh, realignment, it just, you know, I always feel like Canada is like, if um, America were like 85% liberal Democrats or progressive Democrats, not liberal, you know, liberals is one thing, but I feel like Canada is like progressivism gone completely uh, over the rails. I I think that's a fair characterization. You know, if you go back to the last election in Canada where Justin Trudeau was running to become prime minister for the first time, You saw something very interesting, which was the traditional left party in Canada, the sort of our social Democrats, the new Democratic Party, they moved toward the center to try to get votes. 
Trudeau outflanked them by going further left than they'd ever gone. And Canadian politics has proceeded apace from there. Canada has always been a little more leftish than the U.S., but uh, Trudeau's father, uh, back in the 1970s, pushed it quite far to the left. And it seems that, that his son, Justin, is, is determined to continue that process. So I think what we're seeing is it's, it's a combination of sort of political tides meeting up with, with cultural forces that are, that are not necessarily Canadian. And it's combining to, to push the country, the politics, and particularly the youth further to the left. But I think, the, you know, for, for our purposes, for book and film globe's purposes, what it seems to be pushing the country to do is restrict access to literature and, and uh, other content that it deems politically unacceptable. And that, you know, I don't care uh, if someone's politics are left or right or whatever, as long as they favor sort of the free flow of information and ideas. It doesn't, you know, I mean, somebody, somebody can have any belief they want about anything. That, that's what living in a, uh, a free country is about. But it doesn't seem like Canada necessarily is a free country in some ways right now. Well, yeah, and, and I think what we're seeing under, under the current government, to bring it back around to get to, to books and censorship, is you're seeing um, increasing restrictions on access to information. For example, on the, uh, the meta websites here in Canada, Instagram and Facebook, um, you can no longer share news media. So I, I, cannot, I cannot share a link to a news article from my Facebook page anymore. Really? Yeah. You can't share. So if, if, if there's an issue that's important to you, you can't inform your friends uh, about it or comment on it. Yeah, like I cannot copy a link to my Facebook page, post it and make a comment because that link, it will come up, you know, you cannot share this in Canada. Wow. And that's the government restricting that. Yeah. That is crazy because I, that would never happen. I mean, I don't, I mean, I would say that would never happen. I mean, there have been attempts to censor Twitter and and et cetera in the U.S., but at the end of the day, that's not going to fly in the United States. But it has flown up here and things seem to be getting worse. Well, Jamie, you have an outlet at Book and Film Globe, which is based in New Jersey and Texas, two of the freest places on the planet. Um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, we will continue to uh, cover, I guess we'll continue to cover developments in Canadian politics. Why not? Book, Film, and Canadian Politics Globe. That, that has a nice ring to it. <laughs> Always glad to help out, Neil. All right. Well, and Jamie Mason talking to us about uh, some uh, censorship issues that are uh, currently ongoing in Canada, and we will keep an eye on it on the pages uh, in the pages of Book and Film Globe and on this podcast. Thanks a lot, Jamie. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Look, Irvin, you know why nobody repeats. Because the guys that you beat along the way, they spent all that time figuring out new ways to break you down. But things change. I am in charge, not magic. A real coach doesn't need to prove it, Paul. They're the dynasty. We're the flash in the pan. And that's all we're ever going to beat. Until we beat the goddamn Celtics. Fuck Boston. Everybody's a fucking hero in their driveway. Put them under the bright lights. Most of them are praying that the ball don't come to them. One guy's praying that it does. 
Max, formerly known as HBO, recently canceled a show called Winning Time, which was based on a popular book about the Lakers dynasty, the Los Angeles Lakers NBA dynasty in the 1980s, the Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar teams. Uh, and it was a show was uh, starred John C. Riley. It was produced by Adam McKay. It had all the quality pedigree, and yet uh, they pulled the rug out on the show after two seasons. And there were some uh, people who were quite upset about this. Uh, we were not particularly upset about it. I just thought it was an interesting phenomenon. And so I recruited the only former NBA player who is also a writer that I know, and that's Paul Shirley, who was actually a member of the Los Angeles Lakers for three weeks. Although more importantly to me, he was a member of a much more significant basketball franchise, the Phoenix Suns, of which I've been a lifelong fan. But that, that's not how I met him. We can talk about that later. But Paul is here uh, with me today to talk about uh, winning time and why it didn't win. Hello, Paul. Howdy. You'll be happy to hear that uh, the Phoenix Suns' new owner has invited all Suns alumni back for the home opener, and I'm going to go watch the Phoenix Suns at the start of this year. But that is incredible. All Phoenix Suns alumni? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it, it's like, it's so obvious as a thing to do that you wonder why all NBA teams don't always do it, right? Because it, nobody cares if I'm there, but if Dan Marley's there, that's pretty cool for, I don't know, a season ticket holder, right? Well, a lot of great players have come through the Suns. You know, obviously there's Sir Charles and Shaquille O'Neal and Steve Nash and, uh, but even some of the Lakers Showtime uh, members were on the Suns. You know, Kurt Rambis was a Sun. AC Green uh, played for the Suns. So that'll be really cool. Do y'all uh, y'all gonna have? I hope they're gonna sit you um, behind. <laughs> I, I hope they put us. They seat us according to our value to the team, which would mean that I'll be in the second to last row inside the arena. You'll be in the twelfth row. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, I, I don't watch the NBA at all or pay attention to basketball, but I thought it was a cool gesture by the franchise. Yeah, I love that. So all right, yeah. So you're no longer a basketball player. That is just part. That is something that you did in the past, just like I was once the greatest living American writer. But but you you are a writer, and you 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 wrote a piece for us about why uh, winning time didn't didn't hit it big, and you you had some interesting points about how hard it is to make a TV show about, or a movie about basketball. Especially professional basketball. I, I saw a couple of people comment uh, in various places on social media that like, oh, well, I liked, you know, Bull Durham or Friday Night Lights. And, or Hoosiers or whatever, yeah. Right, and I think those are, they're exactly right because it's not that hard to simulate a high school basketball team yes. or a college football team, right? Because the younger you are, the more mistakes you make. Um, and then as I wrote on your fine site, uh, basketball is unique because it's really hard to hide the player from the audience. So in, in football and baseball, you can dress up people and, and, and get away with it a lot more easily than in basketball. I also think that the fame of Magic Johnson hurts your case, right? Because no matter who you cast in that spot, you're like, but that's not Magic Johnson. Like, this is nonfiction, and just fundamentally, that is not Magic Johnson, so I can't right. believe this. And for some reason, that seems very different than, I don't know, boxing, maybe, or, as we said, baseball and football. A lot of times, because people don't actually know what Mickey Mantle looked like, because they were so far from him, and he was under a cap and this baggy outfit that that you didn't know. So if we did a, 
a biopic on Mickey Mantle, you could probably get away with making someone kind of look like Mickey Mantle. It would work. Right. Well, he was a normal sized man, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's just, there's just something about it that is hard, which I learned very uh, up close and personally when I got to make a TV show based on my first book um, I moved to Los Angeles and lived the whole dream of pitching it to Fox. And they said, go ahead and make this pilot. And I even had to learn how to act a little bit in case they couldn't find someone to play the lead. And it was a whole, I mean, I could write a book about that experience itself. But one of the reasons that we failed was that it just was really hard, even though we had resolved to not show any basketball action, which we cued to, it still, they just didn't look like NBA basketball players. It looked like a motley hodgepodge of maybe a Division II basketball team at the very best, um, but it's it's just almost impossible to achieve both. It's, it's not just height and it's not just athleticism. Athletes move in a certain way that is difficult to simulate with actors. Well, you know, you know I don't know if you saw that Adam Sandler movie uh, on Netflix last year where he played the sports agent. Uh, mm-hmm. about basketball. Now, now, in that case, the main character was uh, was Juan Cho Hernandez, who was an actual NBA player, uh, and, right. and they had actual NBA players playing themselves in the game, so it looked like basketball. Right, it, it did. and then But then that also suffered, I thought, because it it's almost so jarring that these players are so good that it now is unsettling in a way, right? Like, so you're sort of, it's, it's, you can't win either direction. Right. So they, yeah, they, they look like superhumans. Right. Yeah. I think that's what, like when, when my parents came to the first NBA game of mine that they had seen, which was also the first NBA game they'd ever been to, it was when I was playing for the Atlanta Hawks. They were both just flabbergasted at how big everyone was. And these are people who have watched me play big 12 basketball already, right? Which is, you know, no slouch. We're playing against Kansas and Texas and like really good basketball programs always, but there's just something different about when you get to the NBA, the size of people is so astonishing, right? People see me, they meet me in the world. I'm six, nine, I weigh 220 pounds and I'm a fairly big person. And they will say like, you're the biggest person I've ever seen. And I'm like, that's, I am so small compared to most of these guys. Like it was laughable in a lot of cases. So it's just, it's really tricky to pull it off, especially on a small screen, right? Like it just looks weird no matter what you do. Well, you watched at least some of winning time and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the stuff in winning time that I think people liked was the off court antics, you know, the John C. Riley as Jerry Buss or, um, or Adrian Brody as a, you know, Pat, Pat Riley before he was Pat Riley, you know, some, some of the um, the shenanigans, the off court shenanigans. I think I think maybe that's what people responded to. I don't know if you found any of that to work or not. Well, I thought I thought John C. Riley was so good as Jerry Buss that it was also almost a problem because any scenes that he wasn't in didn't work very well um, because there also wasn't. I don't want to say he's a flawed person. He's just a dude who like lived it hard. I don't know that he had any like deep seated issues, but he was a pretty interesting guy as a nonfiction character. And I thought John C. Riley did a really interesting take on him that was like both jovial and heartfelt and a little messed up, but that part was cool and interesting. I think the struggle was that they 
didn't want to be too hard on Magic Johnson, probably because there was some political consideration around, like, we can't make fun of this guy too much. They probably didn't want to be too hard on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So then their characters were kind of wooden and uninteresting. And so then that wasn't fun to watch. Whereas the John C. Riley stuff with his daughter was cool. It's just that it was pretty stark how good he was versus how not good everyone else was. I mean, Adrian Brody was kind of cool as Pat Riley, but even that storyline was a little short or thin, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's tough if you're going to be like sugarcoating the lives of, of your main athletes, right? If you if you refuse to right. show them uh, as complete humans. You know, Magic Johnson, God bless him, definitely had his issues. Right. And it's kind of, I mean, he's like, he's sort of beloved, but he's also an idiot. I mean, if you ever watch him on TV, he barely can put words together. But he's so magnanimous that people love him for that. But he's also such a... He's so beloved that it would be hard to take too many shots at him or it probably wouldn't work too well. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is, you know, does not have the same sort of personal problems, but he's also like, he's also like kind of a pretentious writer. Like he's a writer. Yeah, yeah. And he's also, so I, I mentioned this offhand in this, in that piece, he auditioned to play the head coach of the team in the 12th man, which was so surreal because really? here I was, I was a producer on this show, right? And I'm watching the man who was at the time the all-time leading scorer in the NBA history, right? Auditioning for this kind of sort of bit part in a show that's not even going to go to air. And I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself? And he also was awful at it. Like, I mean, obviously Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has some acting background, but it was kind of farcical because it was Naked Gun related. Um, it was Airplane. Or sorry, yeah, Airplane, right. Which, yeah. So I didn't know what to expect exactly, but like he just wasn't, good at it and then when we didn't cast him we were kind of considering getting him to play the part of maybe a sportscaster and I think we ended up getting maybe it was like Kurt Rambis to do the job instead but like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wanted so much money to do it it was weird and strange and off-putting and I hated slash loved it. Who did you end up casting as the coach? Uh, it was this guy named God, I can't remember his name. Julius something. Carey, I think. Julius Carey was his name. Uh -huh. And he was great. Uh, he played this, like, sort of hapless. The the Chiron came on and said, like, the team was called the Cincinnati Crash. Crash, because that's what a group of uh, rhinoceroses is. And our mascot was the rhinoceros, which was fucking great. Um, anyway, he was the... The franchise's all-time winningest coach and its all-time losingest. Um, and he was the and then we had Barry Bostwick was the GM, which was phenomenal. He was so perfect for it. He was kind of also a little hapless. And then we had Wallace Shawn was playing the agent for this player. He was a guy who like always represented these kind of marginal guys like like me, right? Like that kind of person. And he was just tremendous as well and so fun to like work around. Um, so it was kind of criminal that we weren't able to make it into a decent TV show. Um, I will say just editorially that I had set out to make a show that made fun of professional sports, but then as we got more and more people attached to it, they started to want to glamorize it and that tension didn't ever work like I wanted to do a really sarcastic look at like it's not nearly as glamorous as you think which is the as you know Neil that was the sort of tone of everything I ever wrote about 
professional basketball was like yeah that's what that's what drew me to your writing in the first place and what what made you uh popular uh when you were writing about basketball is that you were you know he was it was sort of a um a ball four approach in some ways you know a jim bouton approach like this is what it's like really like in the nba and that's what was appealing about it and i can tell you also like for as someone who has tried and failed many times to make a show in hollywood and your original intention there are so many ways it can get sidetracked and what and, and turned into something that you don't want it to be, which is why it's always a miracle when I see a show that seems to do what it wants. What connections and will must it take yeah, yeah. to uh, in order to like achieve your actual vision in a TV show? You know, it's just, it's kind of astonishing. I think it um, in, in looking back, one of the struggles we had was that we we came out of the gate so strong. It was like such a hot project that then more and more people wanted to attach themselves to it. And then the more voices they there were, the more diluted the voice got in general. And I also didn't know what I was doing at all. And there's that. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> like nobody had any faith that I knew anything about how to tell the story, which was kind of weird. Cause I was like, but it, I wrote the book. So like, I kind of know, um, but I was also 27 and a dummy. So I would just be like, well, I guess, I mean, you guys must know something. Well, the answer is they rarely do, especially about what's funny. I mean, I think that would be, that was the thing that made me crazy was I'm not a stand-up comic, but I know a little bit about what's funny about this stuff. And you idiots contribute nothing when it comes to the humor, just like, let's make it funny. Right. And that was a, a fight. Here's, the, here's what I always say is like you. I think we, you know, when you're making a show, you need professional uh, TV people in order to help you structure an episode. You know, pace out the A, B, C storylines, all that stuff. But the problem is, is you were providing the content. Like you were the person with the actual NBA experience. And the same thing happened to me with some different, um, you know, different subject matter when I was in Hollywood. It's like I had experience, and then, but, but suddenly, but. Once you get other people involved, they want to impose their own vision on it. And it's just, yeah, it's a mess. But I don't think that's what went wrong with winning time. I, I think, I think it just, it's just that, as you said, it's kind of like at, at some point, it's like, do we want to really watch a fictional version of the Lakers Celtics rivalry when we have mm-hmm. the amazing games? You can watch any of them on YouTube anytime you want, pretty much. Well, they also, so, you know, I, I made a, tiny little in joke on the kind of Mobius strip element of this is based on a book, but the book is just based on reality. So is the show just based on reality? And if so, like, what is the through line? So what you could imagine is, is there a story in there that's about the complete rise and fall of a franchise, right? Now that's not the story of the Lakers because the Lakers are still super successful, but there wasn't, there also wasn't a main tension of like, what are we doing with this show, right? Like if we're just retelling the facts, then like you said, you're like, well, I can just read about this or watch the basketball games. I don't need a show to do that for me. Well, for me, like I didn't watch because I'm a lifelong Phoenix Suns fan and I don't need an HBO show to tell me that the Lakers own our souls, you know? right. And have for decades, you know, it's like, I, I, I have lived this reality my entire life. I appreciate the teams. And, you know, it's like, there was that great um, documentary series about the bulls in the nineties. Uh, I don't, I don't feel like any basketball show is going to do it better than that. The last dance. Yeah. And I think that makes me think about how 
there's probably an interesting show in the history of the ABA, for example. Well, they did that Will Ferrell movie. Right, which my, uh, actually a friend of mine played the, like, Lithuanian guy in that. Jackie Moon was the, his character, what was, it called? what was that called? Semi-pro. Semi-pro, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that is kind of, I think, ABA adjacent. But the ABA itself has a real arc to it around, yeah. like, what was our goal? Well, we were trying to, first we were trying to, like, defeat the NBA. Now we're just trying to get, like, bought by the NBA. So to me, that's actually, you could make a pretty cool limited series about that maybe interspersing it with actual clips. But I would say in general that it's really threading a needle to ever try to make a basketball show about Well, we're going to take it out when the strike is over. We're going to take our ABA show out and uh, right. we're going to make it happen. And we're going to really tell the real Spencer Haywood story this time. Yeah. Yeah. That was somebody else commented on like Spencer Haywood was played by an actor who's like 52 years old or something, which is bananas. Yeah. And I understand he was an older player, but he wasn't 52. Yeah, he wasn't that old. Uh, yeah, it was, I think, uh, yeah, my advice to anybody out there trying to make a TV show is just stay away from basketball and uh, make a football show instead. All right, w- w- words to live by from Paul Shirley. Paul is uh, a uh, an author and the founder of The Process, which is a, uh, I don't know exactly how you describe it, it's like a um, creativity, motivational company based in Denver, they have a website, you can go on there and like, you know, get coaching and, you know, advice and, and inspiration. Yeah. And if you're ever if somebody's ever in Denver, come see us. We have a workspace here where we run sessions to help creatives and entrepreneurs find some structure and accountability. There you go. Very good. And also, he's also a former NBA player, not the only former NBA player I've ever met. I did. Uh, I did meet Charles Barkley once uh, when I was a guest on the Dennis Miller show. Back oh, when I was nice. when I was a famous writer, and he was he was super cool. Uh, but uh, unlike uh, unlike you, I don't have his his email address, and I think I think you're probably a better writer than Charles Barkley. Thank you. Really, really, really. <laughs> yeah, Charles Barkley's the best, as is Shaquille O'Neal. And then another time we can talk about all the guys who aren't the best. Right. I'm glad to hear that you say that because they they are they are my favorites. So uh, Paul Shirley, thank you so much for stopping in to talk about the. The failure of winning time, and let's let's get you back on the site. Uh, you can write on anything you want. Hell yeah! All right, thanks, Neil. We're heading up to the Grand Line. A treacherous stretch of ocean with bigger islands and bigger pirates. <laughs> Careful with that. I don't work for you. I'm sensing a little bit of tension amongst the crew. Not, Not a, crew. a crew. We haven't sailed together for very long, but I know we've got each other's backs. The big hit of the current TV season is One Piece, a Netflix show. That's an adaptation of a Japanese uh, manga comic book series uh, that has been out. I don't know if it's ongoing, but it, it started in 1997 and it has now received an adaptation. Uh, William Schwartz wrote about One Piece for us and is here to talk to me about it. Hello. 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 Yeah, nice to have you back. So I have not watched the whole uh, first season of One Piece, but I did watch the first couple of episodes and yeah, I found it really entertaining and quite delightful, you know, cartoonish in a good way, in like the best possible way. It's, I think it's got a great spirit about it, kind of a gung-ho spirit. And it's, it's about like 
basically like young pirates. And it has that, it has that vibe, you know, that, that sort of, let's start a crew kind of vibe. I, I really found it very, um, I don't know, very likable. The funny thing about pirates is that that's very much a thing that's been super mimetic for a long time now, like pirate, ninja, zombie, dishwasher, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. I, One Piece sort of predates that entire trend, which is why it the whole thing is just unusually sincere. Like, it's like genuine, just total love for pirates, no sense of irony, nothing like that. And it's it's one of the ways that it's dated, but in a good way, because it's just general 90s, exciting manga premise time. And yeah, it is still ongoing. It is in the final arc right now. It's unlike most of these attempted adaptations, it's actually pretty perfectly timed because it will be like they could maybe finish three seasons of a live action series before the actual original manga series is is done. It is closing up soon. But that's still, you know, well, the thing you mentioned about it, its sincerity, yeah, it, do, it doesn't have that kind of arch, uh, arched eyebrow thing that, say, Pirates of the Caribbean does. And it's also a bit, bit different in that Pirates of the Caribbean is certainly a fantasy, but it takes place in our world, in a fantasy version of our world during the quote-unquote golden age of pirates, whereas One Piece is, is a fa- total fantasy land. I mean, it's like this uh, world where oh, islands and, and every, pretty much everyone gets around on boats. And as you said uh, in your piece, you know, the way people, um, people dress it just it, it varies from island to island, and it's just kind of a, a mishmash of like seafaring people throughout the ages. And there's no there's no one real uh, consistency to it. Yeah, like it's technically a bit of a spoiler to mention this, but fans long speculated that the setting might actually be post-apocalyptic in a way. What the original world looked uh, like, who knows? But that's why everything is so completely discordant with each other. You jump from one place to another and just get completely different styles, just about everywhere. You know, but you know, people have superpowers. Some people, there are monsters. There are kind of you know people with uh, weird deformities. And you know, there's definitely like I guess there's some blood and people getting cut in half and whatever. But it it feels relatively family friendly, right? You're not like you know. I mean, if you you could watch this with a twelve year old. Yeah, the One Piece live action series is definitely less violent than the cartoon. That this is mainly because of a budget thing rather than the tone thing. If if you're looking at any of the because clickbait these days loves writing about the One Piece manga, but it's like an important element of, to put it this way, the writer of the manga says the inspiration for like the final form, that's the main thing everybody's talking about in the manga these days, is like Jerry from Tom and Jerry. Like that's his ultimate vision of incredible superpowers is Jerry from Tom and Jerry. Yeah, it sounds really nutball, but everything about the series sounds nutball out of context. It really needs its context in order to work. And I think this is why nobody was expecting it to be any good because it's such a, it's such a weird context to try to nail. And yet, yeah, the tone is, I mean, from what I've seen, the tone is right on the money. You know, the, all the young performers are, um, they're very gee whiz. They're kind of winning, you know, and there's, there's not a lot, there's no sort of wooden acting. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. And so I wanted to um, talk to you about um, the nature of anime uh, live action adaptations in journal. You know, that's something that, uh, that's a genre of Netflix shows. And, and this is traditionally, these have been really bad, like the Cowboy Bebop adaptation. There may be a couple others that I'm, that I'm not thinking of. I actually saw a really, it's a very short clip, a really weird edit of it. It's basically, it, it reframes it as being like Seinfeld. It's 
the Seinfeld logo with Bebop in it. It's about a minute long, and all it really does is add a laugh track. And it surprisingly actually makes it sound kind of coherent and even kind of funny done it that way, because that's the weird part about it is, for what reason I can't imagine, the actors are actually delivering their lines with pauses that are appropriate for laughing. In the, in the Cowboy Bebop adaptation. Yeah. it's A lot of it is just a presentation and how it's edited. I mentioned in the article I wrote about, despite being a Netflix show, the One Piece live-action show actually uses TV-style editing. How, how do you mean by that? I mean, like, uh, every episode is, like, a clear self-contained beat now the significance of this is if you look at the anime version of the show it can't really do that at all because in the anime version of the show a single fight could take several episodes at a time in the live action show there may be five to ten minutes at most now again partially this is because of budgeting but also a lot of it is just making sure to edit it and making sure that there are clear distinct beats like each episode is going off of a different theme and you see that at the end of the first episode, first episode this season on One Piece, and they're they're kind of making it sound like an old action serial series. There, there are a number of uh, kinds of, but yeah, an action serial series, a la something like a, a Star Trek show or the uh, Adventures of Hercules show or something like that, where every you know the characters do evolve and there is an overarching plot line, but uh, every episode has its own sort of vibe. And it move, moves the story along kind of slowly. So you can kind of, you can just kind of, it's like, yeah, you know, you can just kind of eat that bag of chips and then, and then wait for the next one. You don't, you're not, you're not necessarily dragged along uh, an overarching narrative, which, you know, I, I kind of like, and I kind of appreciate. And I found myself, um, I found myself wanting to go back and watch more, but I didn't feel like I needed to binge either. You know, it's a very successful show. I, I got to say like, and, and as you mentioned in your piece, you know, this has a chance to be a real, um, it's a real uh, tentpole for Netflix, something that, you know, can can garner it, uh, fans and ratings and viewers over ex- an extended period of time. And you really, and you think that's possible. I do think it's possible. And then it also, it puts Netflix in an interesting position in regards to intellectual property in general, because this is the main distinction between Netflix and the major studios and the strikes. The other studios think they can make all this AI stuff work because they have lots of intellectual property. Netflix doesn't really have very much of its own intellectual property. And trying to separate the work from its context or the artists is really one of the major overarching problems in Hollywood in general right now, even before the strike. Because this is really, I think, the main reason why One Piece works as well as it does is that the showrunners have to run everything they want to do past Oda. And Oda's the original creator of the manga. Yeah. I mean, the stereotype is you can never let the original writer of something have input on it because, oh, they're going to be so picky and they're gonna not going not gonna to want to let you do anything. But from everything anybody has seen of the show, uh, it seems like Oda's actually pretty broad-minded in the kind of changes he'll allow, even completely changing the entire structure just as long as it's maintaining the same theme. And this this is pretty much how he's always dealt with adaptations of his work, like the One Piece animated movies, which aren't the same continuity as the regular show. Anytime they want to bring somebody in with a new devil through power, they got to run it past Oda, and they'll say, sure, you can use that. Or they'll say, no, I need that one for later, so you can't. On all accounts, he's a super laid-back guy. Like, he answers fan mail, even if it's the stupidest possible questions. I mean, this is actually how they even cast the show. Somebody asked him at some point... What nationalities would all of the characters be? And he gives answers like, well, Luffy's Brazilian, Usopp's African, 
Zoro is Japanese was something that surprised a lot of people because his name isn't Japanese, but that made something that made a lot more sense later on when eventually the story manages to move to the part of the world that Zoro is from, and it's basically a feudal Japan pastiche. Yeah, no, it's a it's a multicultural, uh, multi ethnic, and just cast. But you know what they have in common is just sort of a you know a good spirit. There's a, the show has a, a good kind of like you say, almost like a laid back spirit. Like the main character, Monkey D. Luffy, you know, has this wide eyed innocence about him. He's, I mean, he's not totally innocent, but he has this wide eyed spirit about him. It's just a sort of infectious spirit, and I feel like the show kind of shares that and. I don't know. I recommend it. I think you should check it out. I, I, I haven't heard anyone say a bad thing about One Piece. It's charming. It's a hard show to dislike. All right. Well, we don't dislike it here at Book and Film Globe. William Schwartz has written about it and writes about a lot of other stuff for us as well. And we will talk to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Thanks, William Schwartz. One Piece is now airing on Netflix. Also, thanks to Jamie Mason for talking to me about uh, recent uh, censorship uh, efforts in Canada and uh, libraries that are being restricted by provincial, very provincial local governments. And also thanks to Paul Shirley for making an appearance on the show to talk to me about the cancellation of Winning Time, the HBO show about the Lakers Celtics rivalry. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV on the website and on this show. Thank you so much for reading. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you soon. Original Production.